And please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Once again, I encourage you to open your uh, personal Bible that you have with you, electronic version or pew Bible. Pew Bible, you will find the passage on page 619. It goes over onto 620. Um, When you are studying a prophetic book, uh, it's easy to take short sections because there's so much packed into these just a few verses. And most of you, like myself, before studying this more intensely, knew much of Isaiah by way of verses that are maybe on a, a picture on your, your wall or a screensaver or some passage that's just inspirational and encouraging from Isaiah. This is probably the first time that you've walked through a book uh, at length like we have done. And so I take these bigger sections because I want you to see how um, the message was crafted originally. Chapter 60 is a unit. Uh, scholars agree it is, it is one whole message of Isaiah. Um, the book is a series of messages by Isaiah that build upon one another, uh, building to a climax just before Isaiah is killed. Um, and then they go into exile with Babylon. And so the message of chapter 60, there's a lot of verses here, so I need you to kind of get on the saddle and get ready to ride the horse through. It's like a gallop. You've got to hold on and pay attention. Uh, but it'll be worth it uh, for you to get a, a big picture of this tremendous uh, prophetic book in the Old Testament. Maybe the most important uh, book in the Old Testament insofar as showing God's um, approach to fulfilling his promises that are laid out in the rest of the Old Testament. It's one of the most often quoted prophets in the New Testament. Uh, you will find when we look at Luke during the Advent season, a few uh, sermons from Luke, how much is drawn from Isaiah. It will amaze you. Your knowledge of Isaiah will help you with the rest of your Bible study. So with that, make sure you have your Bibles open to chapter 60. Um, we are in a, in a part of the prophecy where Isaiah is preparing them to go into exile. The message he's giving them, though, is one of great hope. It's a picture of the, the final triumph of God's grace, ultimately through Messiah. Yet the people are in a dark place because they're about to be exiled. Um, but the, the intent is for them to have this message, these promises, to take into exile and repeat to themselves, to read over and over, to, to know these things are true. And now some of what we read will be fulfilled within a hundred years of Isaiah saying it. When the Persian ruler uh, who conquers Babylon, a hundred years after this time frame, um, gives a decree to let them go back and build the temple and build the, rebuild their city, which recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, that's a partial fulfillment. But you'll see the glory of this passage means something more. So there's something immediate for them to look forward to, and then there's something much bigger. So for us, 2017, looking back at this passage, we'll see a bunch of it fulfilled through Christ. Then we'll see a portion which is ongoing, and then finally looking forward to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. That's the picture that we are elevated to see through Isaiah. We have the lens of Christ to see fulfillment here and be edified as a result. I'll start by reading the first six verses of Isaiah chapter 60. Please follow as I read. Uh, This is God's inspired word. That means it is free from error, and that means that it is authoritative for our lives, and it's sufficient for what we need for faith and life. So for that reason, give attention to God's holy word. This is verse 1 to verse 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. 
but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news the praises of the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, uh, we do confess preoccupation maybe in our minds and in our lives, even this morning as we come into your house. Preoccupation or anxiety or concerns about this fleeting, fleeting life that we live. We confess too much devotion to the things that fade away. We love you. We know our focus should be better. So we're in your house to worship you, to seek your wisdom, to manifest your glory. And though we are distracted often, Lord, give us focus about what you are doing and what you will do. Lord, we want to be more impacting for you in this brief life Please give us a picture of eternal life so that we might be bold to proclaim Christ in the present life. Open the meaning of this chapter to us, I pray, in Christ. Amen. Whenever there is the loss of God's glory on display, there is a need for revival and reformation. That may seem obvious enough. We left off in chapter 59 with confession of sin, which is the beginning of any revival or any kind of reformation to occur, any renewal that will happen spiritually. And so this chapter then begins by giving us a picture of the glory of God shown through his people, how God shares his glory in the way that the sun shares its light with the moon with his people. Uh, The moon doesn't have any light, it just reflects the light. And that's the way, the only way in which God would, we might say, share his glory through his redeemed people. Because his redeemed people don't have anything in and of themselves that is glorious. It's that they are redeemed, and they're redeemed by God through his Messiah, his anointed one, the Christ, his faithful servant. That's what we've been building towards in this study of Isaiah. That's what he has been building the people of God towards in this book. Now, I want to make a connection, since we're coming on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, This is the remembrance of that time when really the glory of God was brought back into view. Now we think of what was discovered in the Reformation, the Bible, uh, uh, the solas of the Reformation, right? The Bible tells us that salvation can only be through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and it's all for the glory of God alone. You can't have knowledge of those things without the Bible, so we think of that as being primary. But in reality, the prime focus was the restoration of the glory of God. It was Luther's trip to Rome that made him realize how bad things had gotten in the church. 
it was all about the glory of man on display. It was all about a human system. It was all about human works. Um, all of the glory of God that was wrapped up in his free grace given through Christ and received only by trusting in that work, that's, that's where the glory of God shines. That was obscured down to you do these things and you might be okay. And uh, the leaders of the church kind of carry themselves just as any other human kings or magistrates would. So the glory of God was lacking and was lost in this time frame. And it was because of this that darkness was in the land in that time. And this repeats itself in various places and various times. When the glory of God is obscured, that's when times are darkest and when the light needs to shine again. First darkness, then the light is the theme of the Reformation. There's a Reformation that happens among the people of Judah, a faithful remnant of them, not every member of the nation. And these things can happen in smaller, on smaller scales throughout time, and we've seen that. It would be wonderful to see that again even our, in our own day. But we have to recognize first the darkness we are facing and then look to the light that God has shown through Christ, what he has done in redemption. We're transformed by it and then the people of God are used to proclaim that message even further. But our driving motivation is to glorify God, to bring the glory of God to the world. And that only happens as we celebrate and recognize Christ the Redeemer, and the redemption he's given us. That's what Isaiah says to the people. He says, arise, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Why? Because he has already announced salvation. He has announced in chapter 53 how the Messiah would come in many other places. So arise in light of this and show forth the glory of God to the nations. And we see what happens through Isaiah 60. Really, when we look at this picture painted for us, Nothing, nothing should lift our hearts and excite the promotion or our promotion of God's glory like a picture of the future New Jerusalem where the Abrahamic promises are fully realized by those who are in Christ. Let's explore some of this together as we look at this passage. I love how John Oswalt summarizes the themes that we'll be exposed to in this chapter, really in the rest of the book. Starting here in chapter 60, we see that God will save his people. God will give light to them. He will share his glory with them. He'll reflect his glory upon them. The nations will be drawn to what they see of God in his people. Uh, They will restore Zion's children to her. In other words, there will be an actual movement where people will come uh, from all over to Christ and recognize him as the Messiah. They will bring wealth to Israel's God to Jehovah. This is a a total change in the way you would see things in the world today. Those who oppose God's people will be brought low and God's people will be exalted. We will see finally what God promised in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 and in other places to Abraham. The baseline covenant of the Bible in time and space is God's promise to make a great nation from Abraham and all the nations of earth would be blessed through it. And of course, those people could not keep covenant, but Jesus as their representative, as our representative, does. And so the sons and daughters of Abraham are those who are by faith linked to Christ. And so we receive those promises that Israel was given because the true Israel are those who are in Christ. The Abrahamic covenant is what is fulfilled in what we read in Isaiah. And we'll see it, um, if not in our time, we'll see it in eternity as God works these things together. We are distracted people, 
and it's hard to wow any of us. We've seen so many amazing things. So maybe we're numb when we start to read words that are uh, future like this. But I hope for this time, God would allow us to have all the distracting blinders of this life put aside and just see what God's going to do, what he has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. First of all, look at the way he describes of the redeemed people in the first nine verses of the passage. There is a, a magnetic appeal. Several commentators use this. I found it interesting. I study commentaries that are in different eras, and they describe the people of God who reflect the glory of God as magnetic to those who are in the world. Um, because they reflect the glory of God, they don't reflect the glory of man. That's all around us. But what makes the people of God shine is the glory of God manifested through them. And so in this light, the passage begins in the first verse, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now for them at that moment, it was the revelation of the light that God had promised. Um, it comes to pass through Christ ultimately, and so we can see this. There is an undeniable, ongoing, messianic consciousness happening in Isaiah's message. Um, in addition to the servant songs that we studied, uh, there is a progressing a clear, clearer picture of who Messiah will be. And it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You know from your New Testament studies that Jesus the Messiah is often referred to as the light. In fact, that's the whole basis for John and 1 John, that the light has shone into the darkness, Christ himself, the light. So this is the picture of this fulfillment. But because of this coming light, they can rise up. In chapter 51 of Isaiah, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. In chapter 52, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Those are before chapter 53, that great revelation of the Messiah being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We like, all we like sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's chapter 53. So now we come to chapter 60. In light of that, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Uh, the message, you were down, but now because of God's grace, you can rise up. Um, you can rise up and shine because God has shown you his grace. This is the triumph of his grace in the life of people who were down before. And we were all down before Christ. Make no mistake. No matter what the world thinks about us being down, we were down apart from Christ. But now, as we are redeemed in him, as we rest in him, we reflect a glory that is obvious. It's more obvious than you may think. You say, well, I'm not smiling all the time. I'm not joyful all the time. It's not that. It's a baseline knowledge that no matter what happens on the outside, you are secure eternally, and that shows itself to a world that is incredibly insecure. So it's in this way that the glory of God shines through us, his redeemed people. God's glory in this way is magnetic. Speaking of the situation they were about to undergo, darkness, verse 2, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. You remember when Jesus comes that he speaks of it being in a time of darkness, but now the light has come. So from this time, as his people are oppressed and they're exiled, and they still struggle even in their best moments after this. And it's not till Messiah comes that we have his light show. But then verse 3, and nations shall come to your light, and kings 
to the brightness of your rising. Remember when Jesus comes, how this is figurative from the people who want to come and pay homage to him when they recognize something great about this Messiah who was born. Verse 2, the second part, his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. People from all over the world, just like was promised Abraham, would come to the God of Abraham, us included, us Gentiles. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. There's a sense in which this happens in the first century when Jesus is born, and the Jews don't even recognize it. Yet God makes it come to pass as they come to see and know Messiah. There is a sense in which it continues to happen progressively ever since then. No matter what the shape of the church looks like, the numbers of the church continue to grow the world over. Um, There are more believers in Asia right now than there are Americans. Um, So we may be down about the weakness and the, the anemic nature of the American Christian expression of the church, but don't be mistaken, God is not thwarted by these things in these places with just a few 330 million people. There are 7 billion people on the planet, and God's work continues to roll, continues to move, continues to bear witness, and his people show glory wherever they are, not their glory, the glory of the Redeemer, which shines to people, especially when there is darkness. Verse 5, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. This is clearly figurative language about the way things will turn. This is Judah in a time where they're going into exile, they're being pillaged, their stuff's being stolen, their city's being ransacked, their temple's being dismantled, essentially. They don't have an identity. Everything speaks against victory, yet he's saying there will be a time where this is reversed. And it's, it's using the language, uh, language that would describe things they know to describe something really far greater. A multitude of camels, verse 6, shall cover you. Uh, that's like a multitude of really high-end cars camels. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. This is a vast geographic area, and there will be uh, tribute paid. And it's not tribute about them, it's tribute about about God's glory shining through them. And where does this glory come from? From the light who is the Redeemer. We can't miss This is why studying a book like this is good because it gives us context continually. We don't just pull this out and make it some nationalistic text about just how Israel will be greater, the church will be. No, this is about the glory of God shining through his redeemed people, and so that's why people are attracted to it. We have to remember what people are attracted to. When I say people, the people God calls. Not everybody will like this, but that won't stop God from doing what he's doing. And notice what it says in verse 6. And commentators have gotten overly creative about this because you'll know why. Look at the second part of verse 6. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Now, some commentators will note that those are the gifts given to Jesus. True. But there's no myrrh mentioned. Myrrh was something that was used to help um, with... Frankincense was as well sometimes. It's an incense. But myrrh in burial. And so maybe the gold and the frankincense is because there's no more burial needed. Speaking of Messiah, I think these things are a bit of a stretch, but you'll find all sorts of allusions to this in the commentators who are normally really solid with their normal understanding of a text. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. These will be people converted 
These will be people who believe in Jehovah. These are people who trust in what he has revealed. The message speaks of the, in terms of usual spoils of war, but the language isn't from war at all. These are willing people coming converted. It's a wonderful picture of what God is doing. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with the acceptance of my altar, and I will beautify my, be- and I will beautify my beautiful house. This is a figurative language about the way in which he will manifest his glory from the nations coming to bow down. Not just the Jews now, in fulfillment to the Abrahamic covenant, people from all tribes and tongues. And it's clearly beyond any restoration of the temple that was ever done because there was no restoration of the temple done that was anywhere near as good as Solomon's after this. It's way bigger than that. Verse 8, who are all these that fly like a cloud? And like doves to their windows. For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Some imply that this means that those Jews who are dispersed will will come back to Israel. There's some of that that definitely happens, that's fulfilled. But there's something farther reaching than this, that that your people, God's people, will come from all over the place to come and worship God. It's a picture that we see again in Revelation when in that book, John writes, by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Oswald, who I quoted earlier, said, when the nations of earth see the God of the Bible as he, re- as he really is, no other being that may have been called God is left with any divine standing at all. This is what the book of Isaiah teaches. This is what Judaism teaches. This is what Christianity teaches. Thus, it is a double tragedy when believers, by their words and their, or their actions, make God appear less than all that he is, the Holy One of Israel. Um, there's one culture of salvation that's real on earth. It's the Bible's depiction of Christ as the Savior. There are not multiple ways. There's one way. As we manifest the grace of God before the world, he makes us attractive, which is hard to imagine us as attractive, because we're not. It's only through Christ. Verse 9, the second part, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. The people would know when they hear this, they're not beautiful. What could God be talking about? He's talking about the light that he has shown upon us. He's talking about what he will do through the light. How do we manifest the glory of God as believers today? I've alluded to some of it, but it's by our lives and by our worship. People who love the glory of God will look different in their values and their priorities and their overall demeanor, just how they view temporary things. People who love the glory of God are not bound to the fading stuff of earth. People who love the glory of God want others to love the glory of God, and the only way for that to happen is for them to know Christ. So we want to proclaim Christ. We want to shout for the blessed Jesus reigns. That's what missions is, is proclaiming the reign of Christ. You did a great job, by the way, singing that first hymn. I was a little nervous. Uh, But that first hymn is based on Isaiah 60. I hope you grasp the words. And the words we'll sing in conclusion, too. Celebrate this reality about the proclamation of the glory of God through Christ. And that's what we, the people of God, are called to do. Our lives will express God's glory through loving and sharing Christ. Our worship, here's another one. 
our worship should reflect the same. I know it's a touchy subject among, Christi- among Christians, but it's important to note. Our times of public worship should be a display of the glory of God, not the glory of man. Now, it's hard because we're people, but there are symbolisms we try to do. Maybe they backfire at some level because they are human, but even the symbolism of how we do our worship service. The reason why I wear a robe is not to look different. It's actually to take away me personally as a distraction. The robe just symbolizes the person God ordains at that moment to bring the word of God to the people of God. You notice I come from you in the processional and go back to you in the recessional. It's just a special moment of worship to elevate the occasion. And the building we even have was built with the idea of lifting our gaze heavenward. All of these things are flawed because we can't do them perfectly, but the attempt is to take man out of the picture. The reason why I have the choir in the back is so there's not a performance up front. I know it's not perfectly done, and I'm not judging everybody else who does it different, but recognize what we want to display to the world is the glory of God, not the glory of man, because that's what the world actually needs. They're loaded with the glory of man. It's getting us nowhere. So the church has to manifest the glory of God through Christ. And the last thing we do is say, look at us, we're a bunch of holy people in this place. No, everything about the service displays the gospel is needed by all of us continually so that we can display the glory of God. See, the redeemed people aren't pretty. That's not what makes us reflect the glory of God. We're redeemed, that's the point. And we celebrate that and we lift God's name high. And that's how the church today can continue to reflect the glory of God. Not a display of look at how holy we are, but rather a display of look at how glorious our saving God is. Now, there's a lot packed in the last 12 verses, and I want to break it down two ways. First, I want you to see in the verses 10 down to about verse 16, but this theme bleeds into the rest of it, the covenantal fulfillment we have in Isaiah. It's very important. I think most American Christians don't understand how the Old Testament covenants relate to everything that's expressed in the New. Specifically the Abrahamic covenant, which I spoke of earlier. But also I want you to see that there is a picture here in these last verses of what will be the heavenly Zion, the new heavens and the new earth, or at least it's a figurative picture of the state of affairs for eternity that we will enjoy with the rest of the redeemed. I hope this helps you too as you, all of us have lost loved ones in Christ. Um, this gives us a picture again of the, the reunion that we'll have under Christ's kingship with one another, the fellow redeemed. This is a short life we live, brothers and sisters. It feels long, but it's not long. And the older you are, the more you know how quick it went. The younger you are, it's, out of, it's a, a bit out of your uh, perspective, but maybe you've lost someone in your life who's older and you realize life goes by quickly. So the majority of our life will be spent in the state described here in Isaiah. That should elevate us now to consider what is still to come. A few verses, though, I noted them on the bottom of your outline. I won't read them at length, but I want you to know these are baseline um, supporting passages. For instance, Genesis 12, when God meets Abraham and says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Listen to what else he says in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. This is exact language used in Isaiah. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. It was always always the purpose of God to bless the nations through Israel to begin with. That is, the nation Israel at that time. Now later in Genesis 27, just a few verses there so you can have this preface before we look at the rest of the verses. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. 
Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. He's speaking some personal blessing to Abraham, but it connects with the overall fulfillment that is still to come. Israel's witness to God's saviorhood is for the world. Now, consider how this picture, starting in verse 10, the new Jerusalem is a fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant I have just alluded to. And you hear often here, verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. He's had to discipline them, but by his covenantal favor he has mercy on them. And he will actually make foreigners to help them. Now, interestingly, within 100 years, Cyrus, the Persian leader, is used of God to help rebuild the walls, literally. But this is more than that. We can see that in the language that is used. Your gates shall be open continually. You don't need to block out any, anyone because there will be no enemies who will come after you. Now we're starting to talk about a different state here. Um, day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So the, the people of God, the redeemed people of God, will look like the nations of the world and the riches that come from them that are, that are beautiful about the people of the world, but now through Christ, through redemption, blessing upon his people from the nations in this way as they join. No more threats from outside, total security. But notice the Abrahamic language starting in verse 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Now there's some aspect of fulfillment when the temple is rebuilt, but the temple is not very good looking, the one that's rebuilt after this, and then rebuilt again under Herod. It says in verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Um, There's a final consummation of the Abrahamic covenant that is realized eventually. The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. It's not just the Jews, it's the people from the world who come to worship the Holy One of Israel. The place where last justice and righteousness reigns. This is the kingdom of God in its fulfillment. A philosopher uh, said, well, this is the form of vengeance that the grace of God takes. It converts the most rabid enemies of the church into her ardent lovers and champions. Verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make your, you, you majestic forever. A joy from age to age, you shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. This is not a picture of of um, subjugation. This is a willingness, a nurturingness. This is a, a different kind of relationship with the world. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. There will be no doubt whatsoever when you see this in its ultimate fulfillment how it is that I am who I say I am. The Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob, verse 16. Verse 21, down at the bottom of the passage, just as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant, your people shall be all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. This is the final fulfillment through Christ of the promises made to Abraham. The repeated resounding failure of God's covenant people is their inability to keep their end of the covenant. God tells them, 
to be righteous, but they're not. So how can they be only through the only righteous Jew that ever lived, Jesus himself? Genesis 17 also accents this covenant. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Well, we know they didn't. Who was the only blameless one? Jesus. Abram fell on his face, and God said, Then behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Do you see how this promise made to Abraham in 2000, 2000 B.C. is now being forecasted in 700 B.C. to be fulfilled through the Messiah, the Anointed One? We know it's through Christ because in Galatians 3 it says, Know that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 22 of our passage. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time I will hasten it. Finally, I want you to look at how this is, in fact, something that is an, on, it's an ongoing work of God. Much of it out of our sight at this moment. We're relegated to the place in which we live. We don't see the full movement of his kingdom everywhere on the globe. We tend to think everything's like it is here. Thank the Lord it's not, as it relates to spiritual revival and renewal. Remember, it doesn't have to look like this to be revived and renewed could look underground somewhere and be very powerful in the Lord. That's common. The church started in catacombs. But the New Jerusalem is about the eternal state here as well. This is the final picture. And how do we know this? Well, look at all the references to eternity or ongoing perpetual uh, action. Verse 11, your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That's a picture of something uh, that never ends. Verse 15, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. This is a final consummation. Uh, Verse 18, violence shall no more be heard in your land. No more, done, finished. Uh, Verse 19, the sun shall be no more. This is figurative. It's not to say there will be no actual sphere uh, or star that's the sun, but that his presence will be overwhelming and provide all that's needed. Uh, Verse 19, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Verse 20, your sun shall no more go down. Uh, There won't be darkness in the land any longer. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Again, verse 20. And then verse 21, they shall possess the land forever. This is eternal language used to describe an eternal state. No more enemies. Former enemies become friends through Christ. No more collapsing city or city walls. No more insecurity. Only one culture of salvation in the world. All nations gather to the same light. Among the gods, only Israel's God is Savior. The last verses are the most poetic of the chapter, starting at verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. Um, Metal brings a picture of permanence and security, and it's just a picture. Uh, It's not a picture of the restoration of uh, the temple under Cyrus, or later under Herod. Uh, This is a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem that God is calling into being. John Calvin addresses this in a very balanced way because you'll see different approaches to this text on various sides, uh, far ends of the, the spectrum. He writes, the prophet to whom a full redemption was exhibited in spirit. In other words, he was given a picture of this full redemption, Isaiah. Not only relates what shall happen immediately after the return of the people, 
but discourses concerning the excellence of that spiritual temple, that is, of the church of Christ. He pictures this as a building of the church. We must therefore come down in uninterrupted succession to Christ if we wish to understand this prophecy. In his reign, these things were abundantly fulfilled, and the glory of the former temple was greatly surpassed. For the Lord poured out gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are more excellent than gold, silver, and jewels. We may therefore see the temple now built with precious stones, as was formerly said. When Christ the light appeared, that began the building of his kingdom that will be consummated when he comes again. Verse 17 proves this to be speaking of the future heavenly state. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. You won't need police. You won't need armies. You won't need security forces because peace and righteousness will reign. That's something that can only happen in the glorified state. Verse 18, violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation, your gates praise. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. God's presence, it will be light in there where there was previously darkness. It says in verse 19, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall No more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now about the people in the holy city. This this is about the place, but look at what it says about the people, the last two verses. Your people shall all be righteous. Now we know this is heaven at this point, right? Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. Now we're righteous in Christ, so there is that aspect. But the rest of the language tells us something about the state of our actions. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten this. The people in the city are all righteousness, there's an assured permanence. How can this possibly happen? Look at verse 22 again. I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. Later in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, verse chapter 12, but you have come to Mount Zion. He's talking to people who are living in the present. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. There is this already aspect to what's happening after the time of Christ, and there's a yet to come that we still long for. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, then I saw the heaven and the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see the Abrahamic language tied to the fulfillment of Isaiah after the coming of Christ in the book of Revelation, looking to what it will ultimately be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. I know we're tied to the short life that we feel is long, but it's not long, brothers and sisters. And whatever God brings us, we know the new heavens, the new earth, the holy city of Zion is to come. I said it's to come, right? I mean, 
You all have something on your mind that's hurting you right now. But it's passing. It's going to be fast. So the time we have now is to bring the glory to God in his name on this earth. Says about the new Jerusalem, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Why did he show John this picture? So John wouldn't worry about dying to go tell this message. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is revelation now. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty. No temples needed anymore, not like that. The temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city was, had no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The last few verses of Revelation 21, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Should it surprise us, the complete coherence between John, the prophet, or the apostle, and Isaiah? But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. For most people on earth, brothers and sisters, this glorious picture would bring elation and relief to their suffering. A picture of heaven would be of incredible encouragement to so many saints in the world today. Maybe it takes more work for us, even though every one of you struggles and suffers in some way, and I hope this brings great encouragement. But on the general, it might be more difficult for us because our lives are pretty good. We don't lack for food. We have lots of stuff. We have many activities to do. We have people to see. At this point, our lives are generally pretty comfortable. Maybe we even become comfortable about this life and don't really want things to change. Judah was sort of like that when the nations came threatening. They were comfortable. They became less concerned with the glory of God and more enraptured by the comforts and security of man. They cut deals with man, even worshipped their gods just so they'd stay off of them, so they can continue their lifestyle. That's when things started to go bad for them. This picture of God's fulfilled promises revived them. This picture of the ultimate glory of God revealed through a fully redeemed people occupying a new heavenly city reformed them. May our exposure to this picture in Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, for that matter, bring us revival and reformation. I close with the words of Calvin on this. He describes the seasonableness and the time when it, when it is advantageous that the church shall be delivered. We do not know when this will be, for we would wish to obtain instantly God's promises and are impatient of delay. But the Lord delays for our benefit, and because the time is not yet come, next he speaks of haste, for the Lord appears to us to be idle and inactive when he prolongs the time as it seems, although he hastens to accomplish everything at the proper season, which he knows. Verse 22, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. Let's pray. Father, in light of what we have read in your word this morning, 